Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Chloe Stokes, welcome to the Australian Investors Podcast. It's great to have you with me. Thanks, Owen. It's so great to be here. Yeah, we're going to talk about M&A. We're going to talk about the way you invest. We're going to talk about some of the investments that you've made, that some of your favorite investments through time, um, as well as kind of how you got started on this journey. But one thing that I want to know, and this is going to catch you off guard, so <laughs> here we go, straight in the deep end. I heard from a little birdie that you may know a thing or two about burger joints throughout <laughs> Sydney. That has to be Steve Johnson. (laughs) So I was actually going to ask you just on the spot, if you can give myself and any of our listeners some kind of like insider knowledge on where's the best burger joint in Sydney. That did catch me off guard. I actually haven't had a burger in a while because I mentioned to you before we started recording that I live in Mossman, not in the city. We've got that kind of five kilometre radius in Sydney at the moment, which is pretty restrictive. But before that, I used to absolutely love going to Burger Project in Circular Quay, which is right around the corner from our office, but that's not very underground. In the city, we also have Bar Luca, which myself and the rest of the Forager team love. And we would go there kind of, you know, every couple of months for a Friday lunch, Bar Luca. Another one is Mary's um, in the city and also in Newtown. Yeah, right. I don't think I've been to Bar Luca. This is really interesting. Okay. I'm just looking it up on Google. Right. This is going to be, as, as we were just saying, we haven't been able to travel or even get outside five kilometers of our house. But when I come to Sydney, it looks like I now have a few places I can hang out. So that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. I find Absolutely. That, I find that analysts are often discerning and they, they kind of really kind of carefully think about where they eat. So uh, it's great to get your tips on that. I, I thought a great place to start would be basically talking about your history and how that set the scene for um, what you now do. Mm-hmm. And I, having read your bio and, you know, seen a lot of your work and, and what you've done at Forager, I know that you had a, a former life where you, where you've done the, the, the Chartered Financial Analyst program. Um, you've done the exams for Chartered Accounting as well, CA. Uh, and you spent some time in M and A. So, um, just for those of the for those of our listeners who, indeed, I imagine would be there would be many of them who haven't worked in that type of environment around these deals that we so often hear about in the news. What does a typical day look like for an analyst or or someone like yourself working for a big four firm? Sure. So in an M&A role at a big four firm, basically what you're doing is advising businesses on either the sale of their business or the purchase of another business. And most of the work that I was doing was on the sell side of the transaction. So advising a kind of director or a founder on selling their business to another party. A decent chunk of the work is actually pretty similar to funds management. You obviously need to understand the business, You want to get a grip on the industry, the financials, and the future of the business. You then kind of use this information to prepare an indicative valuation, much like you would in funds management, and then you go ahead and prepare the marketing materials for the deal. 
So there's a lot of analysis, but I mean, I'd be lying if I said I didn't sometimes spend hours arranging logos on a PowerPoint slide. <laughs> it's <laughs> their marketing materials after all. Um, and this is the part that's really different from funds management and probably don't miss that side of the world too much. Mm. Did you in, did you enjoy that? Was it a, you know, in terms of the, that part of your career, do you think that's was enjoyable and it helped set you up for investing in companies later on? Definitely. So I think while I was at I was at KPMG when I was in mergers and acquisitions, you meet amazing people in professional services firms because there's so many people kind of around the same age, um, and you all spend a lot of time together. So you meet amazing people. You're learning from really smart guys, and like I said, there's a lot of analysis. So while I might not have been thinking directly about investing at that time, I knew that I loved learning about businesses. What are the types of deals that you would work you would have worked on during your time there? So they're usually kind of mid-market deals at a professional services firm and not the kind of really large listed deals that you'd maybe be hearing about as much in the news. I mean, there are some of them, but largely not. Um, those deals tend to go to the investment banks. So they'd be kind of small private businesses, um, some retail, some kind of trucking businesses, restaurants, um, just kind of, you know, your middle market types of businesses, usually private, which can then add a little bit more complexity because, as I said, you need to understand so much about the business and the financials and they don't have the same kinds of reporting requirements. So sometimes that can make it pretty difficult to get what you want and try and reconcile things and understand the business from that perspective. So in terms of these businesses, would they be you know, $20 million businesses, $50 million businesses, or can they be small as well? Probably around the 20 to 50 million was where I was. Um, I was only there for a year, but those were the kinds of size deals that I'd be looking at, not much smaller than that, no. Yeah, right. Okay. I find it fascinating, um, the world of private versus public, because there's often a lot of information asymmetry between um, that what you do have in a, in a private market versus a public market. And as you said, sometimes those things that you see in the private market are an absolute mess because the, the financials are an afterthought. It's like just surviving is the first thing to do. So really interesting stuff. Um, I, I'm pretty sure we'll circle back to some of the ideas there. How did you get started in finance investing? Was investing or money or anything like that something that you talked about? out at the dinner table or was there someone around you who mentored you to go down this path? Absolutely not. So I never really thought about investing as a child or even a teenager and I definitely never thought of it as a career. I think there are probably not a lot of role models in the investment industry for a young female to look at and think, you know, she seems like me and that looks like the type of career that I could do. So I left school having kind of no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I did two years of a uni degree called Psychology of Adult Learning. It was interesting, but I mean, I had absolutely no idea where I thought I was going with that. And then I switched to a business degree, again, kind of thinking I would major in marketing and management. And I loosely thought about the idea of public relations afterwards. Um, but luckily, that first year of a business degree, I'm not sure if you've done one, is really broad. They force you to do like a basic subject of accounting, finance, economics, marketing, and management. And it was pretty quick for me to realize that, you know, finance and accounting was kind of what I enjoyed and what I was good at. And so it was very easy to change 
my majors to that. And I knew that was the right path for me. Mm. So what was your first job out of uni then? After uni, I had a restructuring job at Deloitte. So another of the big four professional services firms. Yeah, right. Okay. Because I wasn't 100% sure when I was looking at your CV, what, where you went first. Um, so, so did you start the CFA at that time or did you get into the role, start the CA, those types of things? And then, because you've been at Forager three years now, right? Close to four years. So four years in December. So I did my chartered accounting exams while I was at Deloitte and KPMG. And it was actually Steve that forced me to do my CFA. Oh, right. Okay. So is that like something that uh, I noticed in the, in the bios of the few of the Forager team that if you haven't completed the CFA, it looks like some people uh, are encouraged to do that. So is that is that a kind of a, a thing at Forager? I think it really depends what level you come in at. But, you know, I only had kind of three years of business analysis or financial advisory experience. So I think um, for Steve, it was a no-brainer for me to do my CFA, which I'm glad I've done it now that it's over, but it is a very grueling process. Yeah. How did, you, how did you go with it? Because it is very grueling. A lot of people don't pass the exams in the first time round. Um, I was very technical. lucky. Yeah. I was lucky that I did pass all of the exams on the first time around. I don't know if I have the, would have had the stamina to repeat any of them because yeah, I mean, they recommend 300 hours and you maybe don't quite need that much, but you do need a lot of study. And a lot of people that are doing these exams, including myself, you also have a full-time job. So in the couple of months prior to the exam, I mean, you're saying no to a lot of things. Unless you're a really good planner, like some, and I mean, you study for a year and you do a couple of hours every day, but I'm not very good at that. So it definitely kind of sucked up the rest of my life for two years or so. Mm. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, the CFA is divided into three exams and Chloe said 300 hours. 300 hours is typically the recommended for one exam. Um, I know some people that have spent 700 hours on level two. So um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a beast. And um, I mean, it's great once you've done it, you can say you've done it. So congratulations. Thank you. Now, now that you've been at Forager for a while, how would you describe the investment philosophy and process that you follow? So I would say it's valuation-based. And to put it simply, we want to invest in businesses that will give us above average returns over a long period of time. And I think we would consider ourselves value investors because we're buying businesses at significant discounts to what we think that they're worth. But people tend to pigeonhole value investing to you know, purchasing businesses at a low price to earnings multiple or a low price to book multiple. And I think our definition is a bit more broad than that. We try to incorporate growth and the concept of economic moats. And we think you can pay a high multiple of earnings for certain businesses and still make good money over time. You just have to pick those businesses wisely. When you do your valuations, do you... Do you guys get, you know, down in the weeds on discounted cash flows? Is that like a requirement for every business? How, how do you how do you kind of walk through that process? Yes, we always do a discounted cash flows model. We always want um, that's kind of the basis of every stock. Do we think that the discounted value of this business's cash flows is worth more than the current price? If yes, then we'll consider investing in it. So yeah, kind of we don't we wouldn't have a stock really go into the fund without doing a discounted cash flow. So it's 
Yeah, right. Because some, you know, some investors don't, many investors don't, some investors do. Um, what is a typical kind of, if you could give us an example, maybe to wrap our heads around the process at Forager, what is it, what, what would an average kind of like process on a company look like? And, you know, from that kind of idea gen through to portfolio position. So before we decide to buy a stock, we'll complete what we call a framework. And it's quite a large document. It varies by business and by specific company, but it's maybe 50 pages on average. But the layout is the same for all stocks. So it might look completely different for a different type of business because you might choose to focus on one section or another depending on what's important. But it's created in a way to try to stop us from forgetting to consider kind of a number of different elements. So we have, you know, all the typical stuff, I think, like a big section on the company, the management team, the industry, the financials, valuation, and, of course, the risks. But we also make sure that we consider um, what psychological biases might be impacting us. So we have a kind of a list of them, a table, and we have to identify which ones are relevant on this stock and why. And of course, we still have them, but it really helps kind of sit there and say, you know, there must be at least one of these at play right now. Which one is it? There might be multiple. And, and why do we think that? Can you give us an example? Do you have any examples um, of companies where you've gone through this 50-page this process and you've discovered that you have some biases towards that company? Like, is there anything that you can think of off the top of your head? Because I'm fascinated by that. That's a really interesting thing. And I think we a lot of investment processes don't actually have that built into them. So I think one that tends to come up for me a lot, and maybe on most stocks that I look at, initially, I'll realize you know, recency bias, the most recent piece of information or the most recent set of results. And I think it's been particularly obvious throughout COVID. I mean, you know, business might have been barely growing before COVID. COVID has, you know, somehow been the perfect environment for them. So their growth has gone up significantly or like you'll see with a lot of retailers, their margins are up really high because they haven't been discounting as much because they just don't have the supply that consumers are after. And a lot of those businesses, and I'm sure some of the people looking at them just tend to think about those margins potentially continuing rather than, you know, what is probably more likely, which is that they'll revert back to the mean. So I think recency bias is huge um, for me and probably for a lot of people because the thing that you see recently sticks in your mind and it just feels more important than everything else. So you have to try really hard to kind of combat that and understand the status quo is usually kind of reversion to the mean. Mm. You said that it's um, like a 50-page process. How long would it take you to go through, like how long would it take you to go through a company um, from you know, getting that idea to then presenting it to the investment team then when you have conviction and how long would that take roughly? It really varies. Um, you know, it depends on the type of company, how complicated it is and also how complicated your thesis is. You might have a really simple thesis. And another thing that we consider when we're thinking about writing up this document is 
is there a catalyst coming up that might mean that this mispricing is going to be corrected really quickly? So, for example, is are they releasing earnings next week and might it become clear to the market whatever it is that I'm seeing that is making this business, you know, currently be mispriced? So sometimes it might take weeks. You might get right into the weeds. You might want to understand absolutely every single thing about the business, and this is particularly true if you think it's, you know, quite high-risk, high-reward situation, sometimes we might have to turn it around in a couple of days for, I guess, some of the reasons that I was listing there. Either we think, you know, earnings are next week and we think the mispricing might be corrected or it's just a really simple business with a quite a simple thesis. Mm. Are there any, uh, speaking of thesis, is there any, you know, particular, I guess, strategies or, or tools that you use other than the document and, and writing things down that help you build that conviction or is it mainly within that document and actually the process of writing and kind of filling in that checklist as you go so i think my answer is probably different to the rest of the teams and that might be due to me having a lot less experience with them than them so my pattern recognition like not being quite up to the same standard as them i think you might find a lot of people probably already have that conviction initially and then they're completing the framework as kind of, you know, box ticking. Whereas I feel like for me, and I'm like this in all aspects of my life, not just investing, I really like to know as much as I possibly can about anything before I make a decision. So for me, completing the framework and kind of reading as much as I can, speaking to as many people as I can, listening to, you know, podcasts with the management team or seeing if there are presentations at conferences, but getting as much information as possible and kind of synthesising it in this document really kind of helps me to build that conviction. And do you think, say, some people, some other people in the team who have been, like you said, do, been doing it a lot longer, they can grasp the idea or the essence of a company really quickly um, but do you think that then maybe that opens some people up to kind of biases of their own in terms of, you know, confirmation bias? We seek out information because I tend to do this too as an investor, right? Like I have an idea about what a company should be doing and what it, what I think it can do. And then I, I have to check myself because I often think, well, I think I'm just looking for information that confirms what I already thought about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. But then I also think that's still the case for me because I'm already in the process of completing this 50-page document. So I'm also, while I might not have, I guess, the confidence in my conviction to pitch it to the team and say, we have to buy this right now, I'm still kind of deep in that process. I've probably, you know, probably spent a week or two learning about this business. I obviously think there's something there. So I also um, can you know, be suffering from confirmation bias, even though we're kind of, it, it's flipped around, like my conviction comes later and theirs might be quite quick. Mm. How do, just, just to backpedal a bit, how does, um, how does it come to you actually spending time on that document? Because obviously like two weeks is a fair amount of time to invest of your own time into researching a company. How do you, how do you and Steve and the team, how do you kind of lower the risk of spending such time on something that might be fruitless like do you use screeners or filters like or are there kind of strategies you use to try and put companies on that watch list yeah so as you mentioned i mean we work on a pretty unconstrained international fund so the stock universe is absolutely huge and that was something i found really intimidating at first you're never going to get through them all 
there's probably always something out there that's even cheaper than whatever stock it is that you're looking at right now. So in order to filter it through ideas quickly, we always try and start with why a stock might be cheap. So we spend a lot of time understanding kind of the bare thesis on the stock, thinking about, you know, why it's priced where it is today and what we think that is different from the wider market view. So if I'm looking at a stock and I can't answer, you know, why might this be cheap, it's probably time to move on. And this is much easier in, I guess, small liquid stocks where the answer can be as simple as, you know, no one else is really taking the time to study the business. In larger stocks, it gets much harder, but it's definitely still possible. I, um, I, maybe I could probe you for an example here because I was watching one of the videos that you did recently. I think it was with Gareth um, where you talked about Twitter mm-hmm. and maybe Twitter is a good example then of like how, so what would be the thing that makes that company cheap? Like why was it already brought forward as an idea? Because I think a lot of us, maybe I'm answering my own question here, but I think a lot of us think of Twitter and we're like, oh, I hasn't done anything in years. Still got the same like button and maybe they changed the font, but <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's a good example. Maybe it's not. So it is a good example. I think um, Twitter has been, I guess, trying to monetize the platform for quite a while now. And I guess the reason why it might be cheap is that, you know, it's been trying for a while now and it hasn't been doing all that well. But our thesis is that, you know, we're starting to see little signs that they are getting much better at monetizing that platform. So our view that's differing from the market is that, yes, they've been trying for a while now, but there are a couple of things in place that we're seeing and we think they're actually further down that path and progressing to monetizing the platform in the way that it should or could be. I think uh, another good example is Farfetch. It's the global platform for the luxury industry. Mm. And it was, we started looking at it in kind of June last year and the business was valued at I think six billion US dollars at that point so when I was thinking about what's priced in I thought you know at that price there had to be big questions around whether or not Farfetch was going to be the dominant platform in the luxury industry and that was a reasonable consideration because I mean from afar it was you know just another luxury online retailer They didn't really have a competitive advantage. And, you know, there's a threat of Amazon lurking at every corner, like with most retail businesses. My view or my variant perception in that case was that Farfetch actually adds value to the luxury brands and the industry as a whole. So I was confident that it would end up as the dominant platform. And if it did, you know, $6 billion was an incredibly low valuation for the dominant platform in the luxury industry globally. So it actually didn't take time, much time for that price to increase, you know, I think it was threefold over six months. And we ended up selling early this year because then at that valuation, you know, I think the market is assuming Farfetch is going to be the dominant platform in the industry and, you know, the rest of the questions get a bit harder to answer. So I think that's kind of a good example of how, that thesis kind of changes at a different price. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that's a really good example. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, you mentioned before that there, maybe when you were starting, there weren't too many role models uh, 
female role models in investing, um, one of the things that we're kind of taught as investors, at least long-term investors, is that having diversity in opinions and experiences actually helps. Like we, the way I kind of think about it is if you draw a circle and you have your circle of competence as an investor, you want someone else's circle of competence, which is typically born out of experience, passion, all that sort of stuff, to overlap, but not be a perfect circle over the top of yours. You want people that are similar, but different, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, how important do you think diversity is in an investment team like what you've got at Forager? No, I agree. I think it's really important. And it's so at the moment, I'm actually reading, I'm not sure if you've read it, Thinking in Bets by professional poker player Annie Duke. No, I haven't. I haven't read that. I've read How to Decide by Annie Duke, but not, yeah, not that one. So she actually says, it's not a direct quote. I don't have the quote in front of me. I hope I don't butcher it. But something like, you know, if we want to improve our knowledge about something, we need to be around people and view information that we're likely to disagree with because, you know, who better to let us know when we might be wrong and kind of tell us why we might be wrong. And I think that's really relevant in investing. And most of the time when I bring up an idea, you know, someone in the team will ask me a pointed question that I hadn't even considered. It helps you to get better as an investor for sure, working with people that think differently to you. It just helps you cover you know, a wider range of information or ways of thinking about the stock you're looking at. But I think it also means as a team, we're looking at a wider variety of stocks. So on our international fund, we're quite a small team. So we've got the two portfolio managers, um, Harvey Magotti and Gareth Brown, and then me. And while we're generalists, we tend to focus on different areas based on what it is we're interested in or what we have experience with, like what you were saying before. So having complementary skills and interest helps here. And I think Steve summed it up really nicely. We were having a meeting with a journalist earlier this year and he said, if you knew Harvey, Gareth and I, just kind of a little bit personally, like you don't really know anything about the way we invest, but you just know the three of us and you printed out a copy of our portfolio, You could probably sit there and allocate the stocks to the analysts and kind of say, this is Harvey's stock, this one's Chloe's, this one's Gareth's, and go through and you'd probably end up with a pretty accurate list of who found what idea. And, yeah, I think that's true. And I think it just shows how that diversity of thinking and experiences helps us to kind of look for different types of ideas. Mm. How do you – does that – Does that make it difficult for you though? Like if you're pitching an idea to the investment team, does it make it difficult for you to get ideas into the portfolio? Or do you say that there has to be something within the team that kind of like fosters that kind of diversity of opinion? No, I don't think so. Because what else happens is that, you know, Gareth or Harvey might come across an idea and a good example is, you know, a retailer because I look at a lot of retailers and, you know, so Harvey or Gareth might, you know, see something on Twitter or be doing a screen and come across a retailer that they think looks reasonably interesting. And because maybe they're not as interested in that kind of business, they flick it to me. And I'll say, Chloe, I found this, you know, what do you think? Do you want to have a look at it? So no, I don't think it makes it harder to get ideas in and actually, you know, it really helps with my ideas funnel because they might be looking in a different spot to me, but find an idea that's kind of in my wheelhouse and they'll send it my way. 
Did, did you want to give us an example of a company that um, if people were ticking off, you know, to Steve's point earlier on, um, ticking off to say this was Chloe's, what would be uh, one of the companies that are in the portfolio that would be attributed to you, do you think? Definitely. This is my first investment when I started at Forager. It's called Hallenstein Glass and Holdings. It's a New Zealand-listed retailer. Um, so they have Glasson stores in Australia and New Zealand, which are female clothing stores, and they have Hallenstein Brothers stores in New Zealand and a couple in Queensland, so they're men's clothing stores. So I think um, most of the kind of like apparel retailers or, you know, historically we owned Ulta, which is a beauty retailer in the US. That was, you know, that was the stock that I researched and got into the portfolio. So you know, if you knew a little bit about me, you would look at that portfolio and kind of allocate them straight away, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So which sectors do you typically find the most opportunities in? Like you personally, as, a, as an analyst researching companies, where do you kind of find your, your groove and your niche? So I definitely spend the most time on retail businesses, which I kind of just mentioned. Um, and it's interesting because when I first started, and I said this before, it's such a huge universe. I found it, you know, pretty intimidating thinking about where to look. And Steve kind of sat down with me and he was like, and I was like, oh, it's just so broad. I don't know where to start. You know, how do you even start filtering? He's like, why don't you just think about what it is that you're interested in, kind of narrow down those industries and look at those stocks. And I was actually a bit funny about being pigeonholed initially, I was like, oh, like I'm going to be the female analyst. I'm always looking at, you know, beauty stocks or, yeah, you know, yeah. luxury platforms or women's fashion retailers. But I actually, now I really embrace that. I love looking at those businesses. I find them really interesting. I mean, I find anything really interesting if it's cheap enough. But just in terms of learning about the business and also having, I think, something different to add to the investment thesis. And I think. Again, Hallenstein Glass and Holdings, I'm just going to call it Glassons because that's a mouthful, mm. um, is a really good example of that. So the way that I found it was, and like I said, it was my first investment. I think I was a couple of months in at Forager. So I noticed that Glassons stores and shopping centres were really busy and everyone on Instagram was raving about the brand. So it just looked like the business was really taking off over here. And I was kind of doing the exercise Steve mentioned to me, which was just think about the types of businesses that you like and, you know, see if they're listed and have a look at them. So I did, and it was listed. I took a look at the stock and it actually was noticeable that the Glassons Australia segment was really taking off in the financials as well. But majority of the business were men's and women's clothing stores in New Zealand. They'd been around for a long time. They weren't all that high growth or exciting. And when I was speaking to some brokers and some investors in New Zealand, it just confirmed that, you know, this business was just thought of like a sleepy New Zealand retailer. No one had really paid much attention to that smaller but, you know, super fast growing and now actually very meaningful Glassons Australia segment. And, you know, why would they think to, unless they'd been here visiting the shops or following the brand on Instagram? It also helps that it's quite small. So, you know, it's not available to all institutional investors because it's, I think it's, you know, 400 million New Zealand dollar market cap or something like that. Right. 
And, um, you know, so no, not really many brokers look at it. And like I said, rules out a lot of institutional investors. But I think it's a good example of, you know, how just thinking about something a bit differently to other people can give you a bit of an edge. It's um, it's actually really interesting. I didn't realise it was that small, actually. That's, that's, that's quite interesting. How about, Let me look up any- that market cap. I hope I'm not really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's okay. Um, I was actually going to ask you for some other examples of times when you, when you might've kind of used like the creative juices that, you know, flow out of analysts every now and again to try and find information about companies that, um, help you get that, that edge. Um, I find that when most, particularly new investors come to investing, they tend to, all they tend to see is numbers and spreadsheets, but Mm. it goes well beyond that. Right. So being more creative in that aspect is actually what I find really interesting. So maybe you've gone and visited stores or uh, you've spoken to people. Um, Does any kind of stories or like anecdotes you have there, I'm sure will be really valuable. Yeah. So I don't know whether I'd call it creative, but I guess some things that I've done in the name of research that, you know, what, like you said, maybe people wouldn't think that it was part of what an analyst might do when learning about a company. I mean, we just spoke about Glassons. I found that opportunity by shopping, walking past the stores, noticing they're full of customers and speaking to the staff. It's amazing the things you can find out. They'll tell you, you know, how quickly they're stocking out of key sizes or you'll notice maybe how much better the customer service is than in similar stores or you'll see really long lines for the changing rooms while, you know, the store next door is empty. So every time I walk past a glass and store now, I'll go in and I'll try to speak to the staff if they're not too busy. If they are busy, I'll just observe. And, I mean, actually, if Gareth walks past a glass and store, he'll kind of take a photo of, you know, how many people are in there and send it to me. So we're all kind of observing um, in the stores. I think another interesting one, we were recently looking into a new listing in the US called the Beauty Health Company. So Harvey actually suggested that I look at the business on, I think it was late on a Friday afternoon. They make a machine called the Hydrofacial. I started doing some Googling about the machine. They get absolutely rave reviews um, from customers. There's all these articles from journalists. I think even Beyonce um, was quoted saying how much she loves getting a hydrofacial. I mean, I'm sure she probably got paid for that, but, you know, <laughs> Beyonce said it. And I love skincare. So apart from being interested in this business because, you know, maybe it's cheap and it's a good opportunity, I was now very interested in the product. As soon as I read the reviews, I mean, I was frantically calling salons in my area trying to get in. I ended up getting an appointment, you know, first thing the following morning and they were right. I mean, it was the best facial I've ever had. And before we were locked down here in Sydney, I was getting them every couple of weeks. Um, We actually didn't end up investing in the company. Unfortunately, the stock moved really, really fast. We thought we missed it and then it kept kind of climbing and then we really did miss it. So you can't get them all, but it's a great business. Um, I'm continuing to follow it. And I've, I mean, I've already booked my first hydrofacial for when I get out of lockdown. It's the first thing that I've booked in. So 
<laughs> it's funny because we talked off air about the things that we would do as soon as we got out of lockdown. Yeah. In a hydrofacial, right. Okay. So that's absolutely. I think it. another good one as well, actually, is social media, which I think a lot of analysts probably use. But I feel like it becomes even more organic if you're actually, you know, a customer of the business, because not only would you follow, you know, the business you're invested in, you'd follow their competitors they'd be showing up really kind of high up on your feed compared to if you're following it just because you're investing with it and in it and you might not engage as much. But also I'll go back to Glassman's again because I think it's a really good example. Um, Steve Johnson, our chief investment officer, has a niece who's in her early 20s, which is, you know, prime target market for Glassman's. And she mentioned to Steve that she'd seen some US um, TikTok stars talking about and wearing Glassons clothing. And they actually really focused on Australia and New Zealand. They don't have any stores overseas. I, I knew that they did sell things overseas, but it was never a focus for them. It was just, you know, someone in the US found Glassons and ordered something, they would ship it to them. But that kind of forced us to, you know, look into the internet traffic and we noticed that traffic in the US was up really significantly recently. And I asked the question the last time I spoke to management. They kind of, you know, didn't give too much away. They don't really talk about it. But they said, you know, yeah, we always have shipped over there. We are getting a bit more interest. We have had some TikTok stars advertising. But then they reported their results last week. And they've now created a specific US website, which they were never really kind of talking about before. So I think it was like, you know, TikTok was a leading indicator for the US traffic in Glassons. And we probably wouldn't have paid too much attention to it if it weren't for that. Mm, that's yeah, that's fascinating. Just anything that you can do for that leading indicator makes sense. Um, so we talked about it before, but just in terms of valuation, um, some of these companies you come across, right? Like you mentioned there, you know, that the stock just kept rising and rising. Um, do you think, like personally, do you think that um that valuation can sometimes be a, like a, I guess, a bit of a, an anchor on, on your investment returns because you're focused so intently on that? Or do you think that, um, you know, that that's, it's, it's, it, it makes sense because, you know, if I can model something and I can get a sense of the valuation, I know where it's going and what it's worth. And then I should move on because there's an opportunity cost. Like there's a kind of like people tend to get, or investors tend to get, I guess, a bit religious in their, their, the sense of, uh, investing in valuations. I'm just interested to know where you fall on that line. Yeah. So I'm definitely always thinking about valuation and kind of everything we buy, you know, I think future cash flows are worth substantially more than the current price. But there are also a lot of qualitative inputs that go into that model. And I think it's really important to be aware we're trying to estimate roughly rather than exactly I mean nothing that I'm putting into my model is fact I think we all need to recognize our models are never going to be perfect or probably not even close mm -hmm. but sometimes I to kind of try and avoid the whole you know selling too early because your initial valuation was you know x and now the price is y which is higher than x and not kind of factoring in recent things that have happened to the business Sometimes I like to flip it a little bit and think about what's currently priced into the valuation. So, 
you know, what the business needs to do in order to justify the current valuation. So I might think, you know, to justify its current stock price and give me, say, I want a 15% return for that business, it needs to grow, you know, 5% per year. My variant perception might be, you know, for reasons X, Y, Z, it will actually grow 10%. All else equal, this business is clearly undervalued. You know, alternatively, the business might grow 15% and I might have, you know, really underestimated how much of a bargain we were getting. And I think that's always a risk because you might sell at that point. I think it's important to kind of always take a step back and almost try and look at the business from first principles every time something changes significantly in your thesis, although that's much easier said than done because you've got all this preconceived knowledge of the business and what you think it's worth. Mm. How, you might not know the, the answer to this off the top of your head, but just interested to know, do, do you know what the, roughly the average holding period is in the international fund? So it changes pretty significantly, I guess, over time. I mean, I think our holding period last year average was quite short, you know, maybe like a year or something because we invested in a lot of things that went up really quickly and we sold based on valuation because we now thought they were overvalued. But when we look at a business in order, you know, to analyse its potential, we're always thinking about kind of like a five, three to five-year holding period. Mm. But sometimes that's not the case because if the share price outpaces what we think the intrinsic value is, we might have to sell more quickly. And that was definitely the case for us over the past year or so. Mm. I've got two more questions for you. Uh, One of them is, I think they're both a bit of fun, but the first one is what's your favourite investment? So not necessarily your best investment, what's your favourite investment that you've made to date? Tell us a bit about what it was and how it worked out. Yeah. So I don't, I think it's actually really bad to have favorites psychologically, but I definitely have. (laughs) Um, And I think maybe it's even obvious listening to this podcast, but I definitely have a special place in my heart for Glassons. It was my first investment at Forager. And I've already kind of told you a bit about the business and my variant perception, but it's up kind of 50% since we first bought it. And I think it's still cheap. It's trading at around, you know, 12 times earnings. So I think there's still a lot of growth to come. It's, the business is growing, it's debt-free, you know, it's paying us big dividends along the way. I think the yield is 6%. So obviously when we bought it, it was even higher than that. Um, we've got a director that's got a lot of skin in the game. I think he's got 20% um, of the total shares outstanding. So you know in those directors' meetings when they're kind of analysing how to best use their cash, they're not going to be investing it back into growth in the company unless it's more valuable than, you know, returning that cash to shareholders. So I think that's another important part of the thesis. And the management team is great. So when I first invested in the business, I used to, every time I spoke to them, kind of really push them on opening more stores in Australia. They only had something like 30 stores. I thought the opportunity is way bigger than that. Kind of, You're not expanding fast enough. And they're very considered in their store openings. They think about location, how much rent they're paying, the exact kind of store footprint in the mall. 
And what they really wanted and what they explained to me was kind of to have a really big online presence and just have those stores in key locations and service everyone else online. So they're still opening stores, but they're doing it really slowly and thoughtfully. And it's working really, really well for them, especially throughout COVID. And I can't tell you how glad I am that they didn't listen to me. Um, But I think it's a really nice balance, this business. So we've owned it for a while learning more and more about it. We've gotten some good returns from it, but it's still cheap enough that we can keep it in the portfolio. I mean, it's great when you buy a stock and it goes up really significantly, really quickly, but it means you have to have an idea that's just as good to replace it with or even better, not to mention, you know, the undiscounted capital gains that can come with it. So I think having something that's just kind of compounding over time still really confident in the business and you still get to keep holding that business. And yeah, that's definitely my favorite. Mm. Well, it's one that we can watch along with. It's on the New Zealand exchange under HLG is the ticket code. Yeah, cool. Because I just got the, I I did just pull up the stock on another tab here and I noticed it did have a 6% yield and I was thinking, Jesus, this is is not normal for the current century. So um, yeah, really interesting. So, okay, that's good to know. How about the last question, which I always ask is just, if you could go back in time and tell yourself one thing about money, finance or investing, what is that piece of advice that you would give to the younger Chloe Stokes? I would just want a younger Chloe and I think young people everywhere to understand their options when it comes to money, because it was never something that I thought about. So to put it simply, there are three things you can do with every dollar you earn. You can spend it, you can save it, or you can invest it. So just say you have a dollar in 30 years. If you spent it, you'll obviously have zero dollars. If you saved it, you'll have a dollar, but you know it's going to buy you significantly less than what it buys you now because of inflation. Or you could invest that dollar and in 30 years, just say you got you know average market returns of 8%, you would have $10. So 10 times your money. It's probably more impactful with a larger number. So you know, $10,000, you'd have $100,000 you know, without touching it in 30 years. And that's the power of compounding. I think it's really important to understand the opportunity cost of every dollar that we spend or even save. And you might still, I guess, pick spend or save seven, eight, nine times out of 10. I am definitely not the world's best saver. But I think it's just really important that you're making an educated decision when you're thinking that through. And I think that's a really powerful way to think about money. Mm. Yeah, it's wonderful. There's a recurring theme that is compounding is really important. Um, And I think that way that you articulated there is actually really, really important too, just relating it back to personal finance. Chloe, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Owen.